0: I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the social radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're talking to Gary Tan, the president and CEO of Y Combinator. We go full circle with Gary as we chat about his path from turning down a job with Peter Thiel to founding a YC company in 2008, starting his own multi-billion dollar fund, initialized capital, and coming back to YC to be CEO earlier this year. From design to coding to investing, there are lessons and stories for everyone in this episode. Enjoy. So welcome, Gary.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I need to read you something. Oh, yeah. I was thinking about when we first met, and I went back through my Gmail account and found an email from April 20th, 2008, that you emailed me saying, I just wanted to thank you so much for the amazing event today, which was Startup School. And we had met there randomly because you were attending it. And you brought your camera and took a whole bunch of amazing photos that you then shared with me. And I was so psyched. We used those on the website and all of that. But that's when we first met, April 2008. And then, well, I'm going to ask you a question about photography, but just to put it into a little context, you then must have turned right around and applied for the summer 2008 batch.
1: Oh, definitely. I'm pretty sure that... uh... startup school was the thing that, you know, tipped it over the edge for me. And I'd never been to an event that was that well run. And then the number one thing I remember was everyone we sat next to, they were engineers or product managers or designers and just builders. And uh, they all spoke our language. Whereas, you know, when you go to most tech events, you don't get that. You get the, you know, sort of in YC parlance, the scenester, right? The person who's not really going to build stuff. They're sort of there to leech off the people who are the builders. And I was like, this is crazy. I've, I didn't even know this existed.
0: Well, gosh, I'm totally flattered by that. Actually, it was a well-run event because I did it single-handedly, <laughs> which was why I was so psyched to get some free photos, professional-grade photos. But in all seriousness, you studied at Stanford and we did the event at Stanford, I think in Kresge or something. Did you not have events like that at Stanford while you were there?
1: I mean, Stanford is awesome, and I, you know, deeply believe that Stanford changed my life, but this was another level, right? There's sort of the academic resume level of being prestigious and smart, and, you know, everything that Stanford does is prestigious and smart, but there is something that is another level about YC that I saw, which was these are people who are practitioners and builders who are less about the name, and actually more about the outcomes. I've been addicted to that ever since.
0: So you were a photographer. Were you just an amateur photographer? When did you start doing that?
1: The funniest thing is I was working at Palantir which, when it was like 10 people and they asked me to make the website and make the jobs page. And then I realized that we didn't have any good photos of what was going on. So I got a DSLR camera and then I sort of got hooked to that. So literally it was uh, a matter of, recruiting for our startup, I taught myself how to do DSLR photography just, you know, in the evenings or like in the cracks between like coding and, you know, creating PRD specs. And then I just got really hooked. And there was actually a moment in there when I had left Palantir and when I had gone to startup school, I was actually considering becoming a uh, editorial photographer for a hip hop magazine. (laughs) Really? Wow. But, you know, I would have never made any money doing it, but I I thought photography is really powerful. But, you know, I'm sort of lucky that I did go to startup school because that put me on a different path and it put me on the path of being able to start a company.
0: And we plan to talk all about that path today, Gary. So we're very excited. (laughs)
1: Let
0: me quickly back up because you mentioned Palantir. So first of all, you were at Stanford and you grew up in the Bay Area, but I remember you've mentioned you, you were food insecure, you didn't have a lot of money. You get into Stanford and go there. What was that like for you?
1: I guess it was everything I sort of expected and more in a lot of ways. The funniest thing is uh, we all hope that the world is kind of like college. And I don't know, you go into the world, you graduate, and then you realize, oh, no, it's more like high school. <laughs> so, But, you know, Stanford was amazing. I mean, it was Really, really the smartest people I'd ever met, it actually sort of forced me to change my personality a little bit. I remember, you know, sort of being the smartest kid in my high school, but I didn't go to a great high school. I went to sort of a mid to low ranked California public school. So, but the lucky thing was I uh, really connected with my teachers and we ended up sort of, I realized because there were so few good students in our high school, we ended up having the same teachers pretty much, you know, three or four years all the way through. And so my experience with those sort of dozen other kids who were in the honors AP track sort of resembled a private school in some ways. But going to Stanford, I think there's just an excellence, like a, a set of people who were just smart and with it. And I realized I wasn't the smartest in the room anymore. If you guys follow Myers-Briggs, I actually went from um, ENTJ, which is sort of the uh, classic you know CEO founder personality. It's almost, you know I'm sorry, you have to die. <laughs> And then I actually became uh, ENFP, which is much more, you know, sensing and feeling and uh, empathetic because I suddenly realized, oh, I'm not necessarily the smartest person in that room and at any given room at Stanford.
2: Did you apply other places or did you know Stanford was your goal the entire time you're in high school?
1: I guess the craziest story is uh, Stanford had the earliest application deadline. So I wrote all my applications for Stanford and then in between me writing the essays for all the other schools. I had read uh, Anne Rand's The Fountainhead. And so I actually changed my essay and I got waitlisted and rejected everywhere else. Wow. <laughs> and I credit Anne Rand for that. <laughs> I'm not in my Anne Rand phase anymore, thankfully, but um, you know, it was a very funny <laughs> outcome to have. Yes. Wow. Um, but you know, knowledge and ideas are very powerful things. So of course, now, many, many years later, looking at it, it's like, of course, college admissions essay readers are not big fans of objectivists, I think.
0: (laughs) That's great. So I did not know that. That's so interesting. Uh, So you're you're at Stanford. Are you sort of involved in startups or do they pique your interest? Because you obviously went to Palantir soon after.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, we were always trying to start companies. And I remember applying with my college roommate and one of my friends from high school to, you know, the e-challenge at Stanford and they loved the idea. I think it was an ad tech company. It ended up being like what Link Exchange was if you remember that what Al, I think um,
0: Ali Partovi, right? Yeah,
1: that's right. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, I think so. We ended up not getting funding and you know I remember them saying, "Oh, like too green," which now I sort of understand. Like it's it's kind of funny to be on the other side of that. We probably could have done it actually. We just needed to take it a thousand times more seriously, but It's so funny now, spending so many years funding companies and working with YC. The difference between committing yourself and actually doing it versus like sort of going through the motions is not that different, actually. It just requires a choice. And I realized like we were right there at the precipice of the choice, but we didn't even know it was there. And then we just, you know, didn't make that extra step. So we probably could have started a company right right out of college.
2: Did you and your friends have like a startup icon? Like we all want to be like X.
1: I think Bill Gates through high school and college was like a little bit more the person we wanted to be like. And then, of course, I ended up going to work at Microsoft. I was actually sort of amazed how different that place had become, like sort of the swashbuckling, you know, make new products sort of place that we remember reading about for Microsoft back in the 90s. I mean, they were also really mean and they'd copy everything.
0: Did you work for Microsoft right out of college?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've known
0: you since 2008 and never realized you worked at Microsoft.
1: Yeah, I know. And it was, uh, I mean, it was a time where there were no startups, really. 1999 had happened, and that was my first year of college. And then by 2002, that was sort of, you know, Web 1.0 had sort of burst.
2: Crashed hard.
1: Yeah, that's right. And I remember like interviewing at a bunch of these startups and then suddenly all the startups were gone.
0: So wait a second. So you said also you were interviewing for startups, but took a job out of Stanford at Microsoft.
1: Yeah. I mean, by 2003, when I was graduating senior year, there were really not many startups left.
0: Okay. Because they had all burst in the bubble. What job were you doing and what was it like there? Were you in Seattle?
1: Yeah. So I, I had actually been making web pages and, you know, database-backed websites since uh, 1997. Even though I was like 22, I had many, many years of experience making websites. And you know, I worked at one of the agencies that made the first Apple e-commerce store, for instance. And that was really fun. Oh, wow. That's where I, you know, how I learned to code when I was, you know, 17, I think, taking BART into San Francisco. And yeah, I, I just loved writing code and making stuff. So I don't know, by 2003, it was very disappointing, like that. uh, And this was very wrong. When I think about crypto today, I sort of wonder if we're entering, you know, sort of the same phase that the web was in, in 2002, 2003. And when I was 22 years old, I thought, oh my God, I missed it. It's over. Like, what the web is over. (laughs) The interesting thing about that was like, right when I was thinking the web was over, some smart people who were dropping out of Harvard uh, were working on the Facebook. It was exactly the right time to be working on what everyone thought was consensus dead, that the web was dead, pets.com is dead, you know, none of this will ever come back, the bubble's over, right? Right. If anything, now, like the past sort of 20 years has taught us that that was the wiggles of false hope, maybe that was the, you know, there's sort of this trough after the hype wave the ideas were right about the web, right? Like social networks were definitely going to happen just because they hadn't happened yet. That didn't mean that it was never going to happen.
2: It's so funny that you mentioned pets.com because way before you mentioned it, that's the first company that came to my mind. And I'm like, that poor company was the poster child for web 1.0 crash. Like just absolutely.
0: You were still young enough to be naive and you probably believed all the news articles that it was dead.
1: Yeah. Well, some of it is like even believing in reading the news articles and believing that don't get this wrong. Like I, I know many reporters, they're really smart, but they're also sort of telling you mm-hmm. the second and third hand like consensus view of how the world works, not telling you what is actually happening. And the real thing that was really happening is happening in some you know, bedroom, garage, like two-bedroom apartment in, you know, a YC startup that is working on a fringe technology that nobody's heard of yet, but people are excited about, like some toy that nobody knows about. And uh, that's like the real thing that's happening. There wasn't TechCrunch back then, Twitter didn't exist, but there was, you know, the Wall Street Journal or Business Week, or, you know, do you remember like the Industry Standard, you know, or Red Herring Magazine, like there are all these things that you know, tried to teach you what the next thing was, but those people weren't, they were just wrong. Like, you know, just looking at the second and third hand retelling of stuff that had happened like six or nine months ago, like you're reading PR. And the real thing was like, you know, happening in in, in code editor someplace quietly at like 2 AM.
0: So I wanna get to how you made the move to Palantir, but I have to ask, going to work at Microsoft, is it demoralizing?
1: Oh yeah, for sure, maximum. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) just like, tell me a little, give me a nugget. What was it like?
1: Some of it, though, was also, you know, this was the first money that I was making. You know, I think I got a, you know, the job was like seventy thousand dollars a year, which was like more money than I'd ever seen before as a twenty-two year old. I do think that I made some mistakes about how I should have thought about money. Like, you know, I got the got a brand new car. Granted, it was like a Honda Accord, but it was a brand new Honda Accord. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I got the nicest leased apartment that I could get in, you know, the fancy part of Seattle so I could go drink martinis with my friends on Friday and Saturday nights. I regret all that because, you know, in the background, I knew that I wanted to start a company, but I sort of fell for the trap, right? Like you go to a job, you sort of get, you know, just shat on all day by like all the, you know, the, the giant company of people who, you know, aren't really building that much, right? Like I couldn't believe how many people there were to just ship a product that um, was sort of copying what RIM Blackberry was. So I I ended up leaving the web uh, working on uh, Windows Mobile. And they actually gave me like the 22 year old level 59 PM. They gave me all of the things that ended up making the iPhone a success. So like music and photos and like all of the, they were pretty fun scenarios, but they gave it to the like lowest, newest, PM and uh, also gave me no resources at all. So I sort of remember like going with some of the other junior PMs. It was all about integration into uh, Windows, for instance, you know, Windows Media Player was a big thing, like people stored their MP3s in there. I remember we had to like go over to uh, the Windows Media Player PM's office and like wait there. My friend brought a bat, like not to actually threaten him or anything, but it was just like sort of like a theatrical device. It's like Hey guys, like, we really need this thing. (laughs) And and sometimes they'd give it to us. Sometimes they would fix the bug and often they wouldn't. And then that's why it was so broken. It was like impossible to get anything done because, you know, Microsoft by then uh, was not like sort of the Bill Gates, like ship a lot of software and work hard and, you know, make something awesome. It was sort of the ossified set of fiefdoms of people who, you know, were paid outrageously well and mainly got ahead by backstabbing each other in like sort of the, the stack rank every year. So it was just a sort of ossified place. and uh, And then it was such a terrible place to work that I had to like sort of self-soothe by like drinking and partying with my friends or something. And I, at some point I realized, yeah, I realized at some point, like it was a trap, you know, like this, uh, the system sort of traps you into a job that you don't like. So then you need to like spend money on things you don't need to try to like make yourself feel a little bit better. And that, that was like my 22 year old experience.
0: I did the same thing, but I was 25. So I think it happens
2: to the best of us. um, Yeah, totally. And
1: if people are listening, like there's a way out. Don't worry.
2: <laughs> they are golden <laughs> handcuffs, but you can take them off. That's right. So
0: how did you land in Palantir? You you decided to make a change for yourself, obviously.
1: Yeah, some of my friends uh, started a company with Peter Thiel. I think they were working at his hedge fund. I guess initially they wanted to work on some stuff I didn't really want to work on. My parents were immigrants from uh, Singapore and Burma. And on my mom's side, we were sort of, you know, both economic and ethnically political refugees from both China and Burma to Canada. I was always worried about like politics and the government. So, you know, initially Palantir was meant to help three letter agencies catch Osama bin Laden or help with surveillance of people. And that wasn't really something I exactly wanted to work on you know, later they came and said, hey, could you work on hedge fund software? And I was like, oh, okay, well, political stuff and things that sort of affect um, (laughs) like three-letter agencies. I don't know if I'm the right person, but, you know, if it's about markets, you know, macroeconomics and helping hedge funds, you know, I think I can build software for that. So I ended up joining, I ended up turning down the chance to co-found it early, but I ended up joining maybe a year later after they had gotten started. And, you know, the crazy thing about that is it, you know, even today, it, it almost certainly cost me nine figures, that decision. But on the other hand, like if you're smart and you're skilled, it sort of doesn't matter. Like it'll it'll all work out at least knock on wood. Like that's what I want for people that if you're smart, capable and you can make things for other people, the m- money will come.
0: I totally agree. And it, it, so- it makes sense. Your rationale for not joining makes sense. So you're at Palantir. You're like early employee, though, like number 10. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got to design the logo, and I remember that's why I got into photography because I had to make the website, and then I made the jobs page, and I wanted to show like, oh look, we're fun, like we have catered, catered lunches and dinners, and you know, look at all the bean bags around and all that stuff. So I remember going to uh, Stanford Sweet Hall, and uh, we would bring like stacks of pizza boxes. This is where all the software engineers would like hang out and do their uh, like Unix coursework at at Stanford we would print out these things with the logo of Palantir and it'd be like, Palantir, come join the next Google. And people would eat our pizza, but then be like, how dare you? <laughs> we were like a 10 person company saying that we were going to be the next Google. But, you know, I just think about that as uh, that was what was sort of necessary to, you know, even put out that vibe was necessary to like hire and build like the kind of team that was necessary. And, you know, of course, Palantir ended up being a multi-billion dollar public company, but it's not exactly Google, I guess.
2: What what year is it that this is happening?
1: Uh, this is 2006.
2: 2006. Okay. Yeah. And what did you learn about
0: startups while at Palantir? Because obviously you're starting to think at some point that you might start your own. What did you learn while at Palantir that was really important?
1: I think at the end, at the end of the day, it was really about software. And, you know, I I think when people look at Palantir, they sort of wonder, how does it work? How could they build these giant uh, revenue streams from like the government? I think the number one thing I learned was software and the ability to build technology. There's sort of a technocratic aspect to Palantir that actually runs through YC and runs through everything that I've seen work in technology, period, is like, What do the builders want to build and what are they capable of building? And then everything else about technology capitalism is about like latching on to that technology. So in the end, it's like, what does a software engineer want? And like, what are they capable of doing? And then everything else, all the superstructure around that is like mostly extractive from those software engineers, (laughs) which is crazy. When you look at Microsoft, that's what it is, right? It's a late stage technology holding company meant to extract as much money as possible from The real wizards of the situation which are like the software engineers and designers and product people the average profit per employee at like most tech companies it really ranges but it's pure profit sometimes like half a million dollars to like two to five million dollars something like that it's like really sort of astonishing and then it's only a very recent phenomenon i think the past three or five years that tech started to have to actually pay that amount of money to their top performers back in 2003, 2005. Like that wasn't true. You know, even your top performing engineers, they'd make like 300, $400,000, but on a per employee basis, like they'd probably be making like tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of market value. And it was like purely extractive. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that that's what I learned from Palantir is like, that's really valuable. And so Software engineers and people who are able to create these products and services for other people that like society desperately needs don't underplay and undersell like what that is worth because every startup and every business in the world needs it and needs it desperately. And uh, that's what Palantir is. It just goes into these situations that would never have access to a good software engineer and then apply software and, and then there's leverage. And I think that, that has like played out across my entire career. Like. Every startup that we fund that turns out to be great, the core of it is great technology that then solves some problem or need that, frankly, just unlocks things people need.
0: Well, that's a good segue, actually, because now I'm going to ask you about, you come to startup school, you're obviously interested in startups at Stanford. You you must have applied to YC within the next few weeks. I mean, I think we must have been doing interviews in May for that summer, which, by the way, was in Cambridge. But what led you to take the leap to start your own company?
1: I ended up wanting to be a designer. I was, you know, my, I was 26 at that time. So I was sort of in my searching mode. Like I spent a few years as a lead engineer and designer and PM, sort of running one of the teams. And then I wanted to just like, see what it was like to be a designer only. So I actually went to work at another startup for uh, Jen Wolf, who actually is now one of the new managing partners at initialized. Uh, so she ended up coming to work for me at initialized and now she runs, initialized, oh, wow. which is fun, uh, but she was my boss back then. And the funniest thing was being a designer was great, but it also gave me a lot of free time in, in the evenings. And uh, I ended up working on a side project on my own time, on my own device called uh, Posterous, which was a blog platform. And it was with uh, one of my other college friends, Sachin Agrawal. It just started as a toy. Like He made this thing that let you uh, post by email to a, uh, initially a WordPress blog. And then I came in and started working on the website part of it. So that you know, instead of posting to WordPress, it would be to... Posterous, you know, .com, its own blog. And the whole claim to fame, I think, was that the iPhone was brand new. Apps that let you post photos had not become popular yet. It was a new platform. Like, people didn't understand threading yet. So Instagram didn't even exist yet. And so basically for maybe a year and a half, two years in there, Posterous was like the easiest way to get photos off of your iPhone. Because you could just go into your Photos app, select some photos you wanted to post, and then click email, and it would just, you press P, there'd be autocomplete, and then you just send it. We grew really fast from there, uh, just because the iPhone existed and there weren't apps yet.
0: I remember it was dead simple posting. That was sort of the tagline, if I remember correctly. So we accept you into Y Combinator. And I have to say it was Probably helped a little bit that I was so excited about all your photographs, and I knew you, and we were excited oh, totally. to meet you and such in. <laughs> so we accept you. You moved to Cambridge. And by the way, this was the last Y Combinator batch in Cambridge before we fully moved to Silicon Valley. What was Y Combinator like back in two thousand and eight? Like it seems so long ago. what What do you remember it being like?
1: I remember trying to get through a summer in Cambridge without an AC unit. And I think we lasted about like four days or something. <laughs> it was so hot. And I had actually moved to Cambridge, having lived right next to the YC office in Mountain View on Pioneer Way.
0: No. So I was wow. right there on
1: Shoreline at the time, and I wow. you know gave up my you know my housemates, and it was lucky too that we did that because I don't think Posturus would have existed if we waited another batch because YC summer 08 was the batch that Lehman died where Lehman Brothers literally crashed. Oh and, yeah, uh, 2008, that's right. So we closed our $700,000 seed investment from our you know seed investors the day Lehman died. And then anyone who hadn't raised money did not raise money for another six months. And then I remember you and Paul said, winter 09, there might not be any investors at demo day. So if you're worried about it, you can defer and you know come back uh, in another batch or two, because we, we don't know if there will be any investing. And to this day, if you look at the batches, summer 08 is actually the least successful batch in history.
0: That is so funny that you said that because I just, before this interview, I was like, I, I just want to bring myself back to that batch and remember who else was in that batch. Cause I knew Cloudant was in it, but I couldn't remember. And I yeah. looked at that batch and I said, God, this, this batch did not do very well. Yeah. And now, of course, I'm putting it all together. Wow. Which is also
1: relevant to today, but I don't think it's as bad as uh, 2008 right now yet for startups. And, you know, knock on wood, it doesn't doesn't go down that way.
0: When we were interviewing people for winter 2009, we basically said we're only going to accept people who can make money very quickly or don't need a lot of money to survive and are really tough. And we only invested in... Half of the amount of people we funded that the summer before, and Airbnb was one of them. thank goodness
1: we use that story all the time now simply because it was so it's so powerful that, you know, on the outside, people look at the headlines, they read The Wall Street Journal, they read TechCrunch. They say, "Oh my God, the sky is falling. Everything's over." I should just get a job. And yet in winter of 09, one of the best YC startups ever came through <laughs> Like in sort when of, it was the darkest, actually. That's such a, a great, powerful idea that I think it's just so useful, especially right now, because it is dark times for a lot of startups out there. But if you can create growth and retention and make a thing that people really want, it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad out there.
2: I want to take you back just one second to you started Posturus. Did you walk into your boss's office at Palantir and be like, quitting, starting a startup? And then what was the reaction?
1: Oh, God. You know, the funniest thing was I went in and did that. And then it was actually Jen Wolf at Initialized. She was the head of product for the startup Reardon Commerce at the time. And she said, uh, you know what? Why don't you just go and leave so you can have uh, health insurance? So, which was very nice. That is so (laughs) nice. Yeah. At the end of the day, like once it took off, like I I distinctly remember YC introduced us to uh, Michael Arrington who ran TechCrunch at the time. Michael liked it so much that he left it on the homepage of TechCrunch like extra long. Like I think it was, you know, 48 hours of, it was the top story on TechCrunch a whole weekend. And I remember we got 10,000 signups uh, that weekend and then 10,000 became 20,000 the week after. And it just kept sort of, it didn't double forever. But I, I just remember the user base in traffic and usage and all of the numbers going up sort of between 20 and 40% every single month for like two years straight. Wow. And all of it was really from you and basically YC teaching us how to launch and, you know, how to just keep iterating. I definitely remember going for a walk with Paul and he sort of berated us actually about how terrible our uh, signup flow was. And he was right. <laughs> And I'll never forget that because being able to take off all of the context and like, look at a homepage or a first time signup flow with like the eye of a beginner, uh, uh, you know, really put your shoes in the user. Like, you know, I don't think Paul's ever described himself per se as a designer, but like that is the key to truly great, you know, user experience design is like deep, deep empathy for the customer and the user. And you know that was one of the things I really remember is like really learning how to to do that and like put that above everything else when building products.
0: Yeah, Paul won't hold back when he's telling you how to improve (laughs) things about your site. Yeah,
1: (laughs) which is 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 important. I mean, I think that that's something YC does today that is so great, and great investors do that. We're already invested, and there's a whole discussion that actually Carol and I had recently about you know what is founder friendly, and uh, I think. There's a facile and wrong way to look at founder-friendly, which is like, we never say anything bad about, you know, what's going on. We just support you, like, whether you're doing well or poorly. And that's like founder enablement. And that's not even friendly. Like, if your friend is addicted to heroin, you need to say something and you need to get them off the drugs because it's going to kill them, right? I think that in startups, it's actually a very toxic and scary moment today where the principal agent problem of investors and VCs often is enable, just puff them up. Oh, well, I I want to buy more of this company on the way up anyway. And then if it turns out to be not good, like I'm just gonna ghost them anyway. So it's just like this purely transactional, like sort of coin operated founder friendliness that is uh pretty scary to see and it just results in more startups dying.
2: Yeah, exactly. Founder honest is uh mm-hmm. is what yes, founder honest. Says. Which we were definitely
0: back in 2008, for sure. <laughs> who was one of your favorite speakers, the dinner speakers in that batch?
1: Oh, um, I remember like Bill Warner was one of the guys who spoke. He uh, created Avid Technologies.
2: Yeah. And um,
1: I just remember that being cool to, to, to hear about someone who had built something that had never existed before and how he sort of stumbled on it. So Avid was, even before Final Cut Pro or Adobe Premiere, it was one of the first non-linear editing systems for video. I just remember that being, it's cool to hear stories of, here's a technology that is fringe that nobody knows about, but is going to totally remake an industry, and then he did it. Or, you know, Steve Kaufer from TripAdvisor.
0: TripAdvisor, yeah. Yeah, and
1: he was great. Uh, He told us about, you know, taught us about A-B testing and very, very lazy A-B testing. You know, a lot of people, when they A-B test, they actually build out both A and B. And he said, you don't even have to build A or B. You just have to build a button that says that it's A or B. (laughs) And then you can... You know, send them to an error page and people will just forgive you, but you can collect the data and figure out whether you should build A or B without ever building either of them. I think those are the important stories because it just sort of teaches you how to be like relentlessly resourceful. And that I always remember from my time at YC.
0: And those were back in the days where there wasn't like tons of content online. So I remember. Yeah, these
1: were new concepts.
0: (laughs) So... After YC raised a nice seed round there, what then happened to Posturus? I know you you sold to Twitter. You didn't go to work at Twitter, though.
1: So I actually had a co-founder falling out. So, you know, as things sort of go up and down, I actually was really burnt out by end of 2010. Instagram had come out and then that actually flatlined our growth. But... You know, when you're in the tornado of not knowing how these things work, you actually sometimes don't know why you're growing and sometimes you don't know why you stopped growing.
0: Why was Instagram better? Why did they beat you?
1: So they actually were very purely focused on photos and then they had a very slick and well done upload experience. So you would select a photo and then while you were typing the description and tagging things and whatever, they would have already uploaded all the photos in the background. So when you click post, it was like on the internet immediately. And it was just like very visceral, super good experience. And then aside from that, they really focused on the network, like just building as many people as possible into that network and just winning that way. One of the things I always think about is how YC and PG in particular would talk about there are new categories of the uh, periodic table happening absolutely all the time. And uh, the best people to understand and build that are actually the engineers and builders who understand how these things are built, sort of like how the best people to figure out what the next you know, element of the periodic table are uh, physicists who understand the atom, right? I think that that's one of the really important things that investors have to help founders with. In the moment you have like sort of this fog of war and you don't really know why you're growing and like what that next category is. And that's actually one place where I think YC and the YC partners and really good investors period can help founders in like really fundamental ways. You know, they've seen so many different patterns and things that have worked and not worked. And then that's sort of the the classic difficulty of being an investor is like the Cassandra syndrome. Like we are soft advisors, right? It's not really our place to... um tell people what to do we can only give them the information and um, the stories and the history of it and then people have to make their own conclusions and really good founders do when failure happens it's often like not looking at the data that's in front of us
0: so the falling out how did that play a role in the acquisition and you not going to twitter and all of that
1: Yeah. This is the trickiest thing around starting companies is just, you know, maintaining that co-founder relationship. You know, this is something that I've, you know, hopefully knock on wood sort of overcome over years of coaching and therapy at the end of the day. But one of the things I realized was I was horribly conflict-averse early in my career. Rather than sort of address that and be willing to like inflect into conflict and, you know, say what I really thought, I would sort of eat it because I thought, oh, well, in order for a startup to be great, I need uh, my relationship with my co founder to be good. And so I wanted to skip directly to having a good relationship, which meant that I didn't stick up for what I believed was right. You know, that's not a good relationship. That's again, like, it's a bizarre version of like sort of enabling, really. That's what I did. And I regret it. Now we spend a lot of time helping people try to overcome that. If anything, the tricky thing that I did was I tried to code my way out of it. And I think that's the trickiest thing today for a lot of founders is you catch lightning in a bottle. And Imposterous had definitely caught lightning in a bottle. But then, you know, the only thing harder than catching it is actually keeping it. And so I didn't have the hard conversations. And I tried to keep doing the things that got us product market fit. What I needed to do was become a great manager, learn to communicate, work through conflict. And I had eaten so much of the conflict, I actually couldn't sleep. And I had a breakdown a little bit. Like I couldn't function. You know, I couldn't eat and oh, like no. it, it manifested in like sort of physical, like just being ill. And, you know, I only tell this story because I think that it happens to people quite a lot and then they sort of don't know what's happening. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, and my sense is every human being has sort of like a horse and a rider. My problem was not that my rider was not in control enough. My rider was too in control. And my physical maladies were a manifestation of my horse or my body, like sort of trying to tell me, hey, this isn't working for you. Like, this isn't working for us.
2: Yeah. Were you married during this time?
1: Luckily, Stephanie did not break up with me, even though I was having a really hard time.
2: I was just wondering how your personal life, like, meshed with this, you know, business life you were
1: Oh, gosh, I put her through so much, so... But we did get married. Like, so to complete the story, I knew that me and my co-founder had different ideas on how to fix Posterous. He wanted to make it into sort of Google Groups. I didn't want to work on that. In fact, I sort of said, you know, Google doesn't seem to want to run Google Groups. That's not actually a business. But I also wanted to support him. So the best way I could support him was to let him run the company the way he wanted to. And then I think I reached out to Harj and jessica about you know i had heard that yc was looking for a designer so you guys hired me as a designer in residence in you know sort of that december of 2010 january of 2011 yeah that actually really was great (laughs) that was awesome
0: (laughs) wow i don't think i knew the depths of your co-founder conflicts it's a sort of the difficult side of startups that people don't get into too much but i'm glad that we got you i remember you came on in winter 2011. And remind me, so we had Harge there. Was PB yet there?
1: Yep, yep. He was like okay. sort of hanging around. And then, you know, I think that summer a bunch of us came on as partners.
0: A bunch. Who else besides you?
1: I remember it was like Aaron Iba, Jeff, Ralston, PB.
0: Oh, uh, I don't that know if time. they
1: were already, it felt like it was all at the same time. And but I remember by summer you guys had asked me to be a venture partner with Aaron.
0: And you came on and you did a lot of our design, design work. Oh, that was things, fun. I remember yeah. business cards, you took
2: that off of my plate. <laughs> yeah. I still have, I, by the way, I still have an entire box of business oh, cards yeah. that you did for me, Gary.
1: <laughs> I'm happy to, uh, you know, redesign the business cards if necessary. <laughs>
2: <laughs> how How was YC then,
0: three years later, how was it different when you came on as a partner from when you had gone through it as a startup? Do you remember?
1: I mean, what's funny about 2008, and a lot of people forget this, was like YC was not widely known the way it is, you know, even by 2011, right? YC was deeply respected in a fringe, but the most important circle, I think, of technology, which is like, it was the software engineers and designers and product people, like the builders who really cared about it and loved it. We read Hacker News. We read Paul Graham's essays and then we looked at the alumni who were coming out. So we wanted to be like uh, Reddit, Steve and Alexis. We wanted to be like Drew and Arash at Dropbox. And then, of course, later is like we wanted to be like, you know, Brian and Nate and Joe at Airbnb. There's a small set of people who have the skills to build something that has never existed before and what they care about matters more than pretty much anyone else in society. I still believe that the builders are the most important people. And that's what YC caught like very, very early. Those are the people to help build. You used to have to either go to grad school or get a job and like, no, no, now builders who are really talented, like you should actually, you should be the one who has the agency. You should be the one who's the CEO. Like the hard part about playing chess is being smart, not like knowing how the pieces move and you know that was I. I remember Paul talking about that, and I'll never forget that because I think that that's one of the most powerful engines that powered all of this. And by 2011, there was Dropbox and Airbnb and Reddit. You know, one you're lucky, two you're good. I think. And by then, consensus reality in tech started to realize, oh no, YC is there's something happening here.
2: And I remember that
1: it was a very different energy, like in 2008. Being uh, ex-palantir and Stanford engineers working on a startup, we had well-known VCs ask us like, "Why did you do uh, YC? We don't understand. Like, you you know could have just raised money without it." And what they didn't understand was having other people in your batch like help you and teach you how these these things worked. And like the community um, was so powerful that you know even recently. I think what, in our managing director meeting with Michael Seibel, he was mentioning that we all came up through startups and we had our YC friends and our non-YC friends. And uh, the thing that really stood out to us for all the non-YC people who were founders through you know the past 20 years, they're really lonely. Yeah. <laughs> like 10 times yep. more lonely <laughs> yeah. and 10 <clears throat> times less likely to have someone to talk to about all of the worst things that happen in their startup careers. And that has a real impact on mental health and and actually the success of the business and just like all the way across. And so I think it's cool that people are now realizing that over the past, especially 10 years, like YC has gone from this very fringe thing that people in tech are, they're like, what is that? You know, and then suddenly it was like, oh, some interesting stuff is happening now. And then to see what it is, you know, how people view it today, I mean credit to you guys, man. Like, it's, it's just just built this from, you know, nobody, nobody believes this to, oh my God, now we all believe it.
0: I feel like it took a really long time, but the whole loneliness thing was kind of the reason YC is YC. We only did the batch format in the summer of 2005 for us as founders of Y Combinator to get up to speed on how to be an angel investors. But then we immediately realized that summer, like, gosh, it's nice to have some colleagues, if you will. I mean, not they weren't living in the same places, but they'd come together on Tuesdays. We'd bring people together. And you sort of felt like someone was in it with you while you were doing this really hard thing. So the sense of community was always important. While you were at YC as a partner, you designed Bookface, which is now a really important part of the YC community.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just fun.
0: <laughs> yeah, did you, didn't you do that because you wanted to help people sort of remember who was in the batch and put the faces to names?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that really accelerated by 2011 was, you know, the batch went from sort of, when I did YC, it was, you know, 20-ish, 25, 26 companies, I think. And then that first batch, I was a designer in residence. I think it was 45. And then right after that, it got to 60. And then I think the one after that was like 90 or 100. It was was
0: 82. And it was the batch that
2: broke YC. Summer 12.
1: Yeah. But then (laughs) uh, both Coinbase and Instacart were in that batch. Is that right? Yeah,
2: That's right.
1: So I think we reached a point and... You know, I sort of realized it quickly just from doing office hours with people that like people in the batch didn't know who else was in the batch. And we would hear like in the in the margins, some stories of people socially engineering YC that way, like they would say that they were YC companies and, you know, YC companies were very likely to become customers of other YC companies. So they would like, you know, get customers or trick people by saying that they were YC when they weren't. And that was, you know, when I realized, oh, oh shoot, we sort of need uh, a way for people to know who is actually in the batch versus not. And then I named it Bookface because it was sort of a joke from the Halloween episode of The Office where oh, yeah. uh, Jim yeah. like writes Facebook on his face and people are like, what's your costume? Is it Bookface? <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> During this time, you bec- then became a full-time partner at Y Combinator but you started Initialized on the side, like as a side project, right?
1: I mean, you kind of kind of uh, told, you know, uh, in- introduced us to our first limited partners. So <laughs> I don't know oh, if you remember I, this. <laughs> it was a
0: demo day. I do remember Alex, right?
1: Yep, yep. Alex Bangash. So, but, you know, I, I think when I look back on it, Initialized was sort of what an Angelist syndicate is now, or we were the younger partners who did not have exits yet. And so, you know, I was... Did not have a lot in my bank account, but at the same time, we said, well, we want to be able to do some angel investing as well. And that was when, you know, YC would do its standard deal. And then Demo Day was really about helping the founders raise money, period. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just a different time. But we learned a lot about investing that way as well.
0: What did you learn about later stage investing? What did you find was different from being kind of the first investor like we were at YC?
1: I guess it just... Never really stops being hard for these founders. I thought it was just very useful to see and just help people raise their Series A and their B. And I, the interesting thing is, like, that's all stuff that is built into YC today in various programs. But yeah, that, that was one thing that was clear. The startups still need help and support, like, all the way through. You know, really good people around you makes a big difference. And it's not just money.
0: Yeah, it's the investors.
1: Yeah, and you know, the investors can do a lot of damage too. I mean, you yeah, know, the best version of it is like people who are high integrity, who are smart, who have a great rolodex, who can help you and like are benevolent. And I think YC has always been that for me and you know, at, when I was away and working on Initialize, like that was something that I desperately wanted to model myself after whether it was the way YC did it or the way SV Angel does it or other people yeah. who we all respect.
0: So, okay, Gary, when this airs, you are the new president of Y Combinator. We are coming like full circle here on this. And yeah. I I could not be more excited. I'm so happy. Me too. Same. Um, yes, we're all so happy. And you know, I I won't ask you too much cuz it's obviously like very early days of of you rejoining, but tell me about what's special about Y Combinator? What What brought you back? Why are you excited to to be here?
1: YC is actually the most successful investment firm that has ever existed in the history of investing, just by pure numbers, period. When you look at most venture capital firms, they are lucky to be 3x net over long periods of time because one fund will be like 10x and another fund will be 0.7x. But what YC has created has never existed before and like maybe never again you know will exist elsewhere other than yc what that means for society is that and this is one of the goals i think you know that i'm hearing in like a lot of you know the one-on-ones i'm having with everyone is that we can really potentially remake the way capital is allocated to all creative and profitable endeavors and like that's needed right like that we can help founders It is the most successful thing that has ever existed as an investor, having no intention of being like a classic investment firm, right? Like the values and the culture and like the way to do things is so completely different. And I actually think the world will be far better off if they share the values that frankly, Jessica, you and Paul and the original creators of YC really set out for us.
2: Hmm. Aw.
0: yeah. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. I mean, it's true. It's a special place and I'm so glad you're, you found your way back to it.
2: You know what I was popped into my head when you said that Gary is there's a lot of uh conversation about where higher education is going. Colleges, like universities, what's going to happen to them in the future? And I kind of think that this is really tenuous, but like it's sort of connected. Like if you imp- if you take all this capital and you empower people to do different kinds of things and not take this traditional path. Like, I feel like that's all related. I don't know if you meant it to be related, but that's how I view it.
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's all—it's certainly all connected because we want a lot more people who are capable and smart, able to like create these things that solve problems for society.
2: And take unconventional paths to get there, I think, to get where they want to be. We want to make it easier for
0: anyone to do that, to start their startup, which was the whole reason we started it was to create this like alternative for people who didn't know what to do or how to do it and make it easier for them to, to build
2: something that people want. We used to have this tagline that was YCs for Outsiders. Do you remember that era? No. Uh, yeah, I don't remember who came up with it. YCs for Outsiders, because it was like, the theme was, you don't need to be on this path toward an elite school. You don't need to stay... In your elite school like if you've got skills and can build just come and build with us like we'll help you my question to you gary
0: a lot of people know this about you but you're a really nice person you're known for being nice and i'm curious if being nice has hindered you ever along the way in your startup journey or running companies
1: i think we touched on this a little bit earlier i mean certainly in my co-founder experience i in the Spirit of harmony. I would sort of go with things that I thought were wrong, just because I didn't want to rock the boat, and that was my cardinal sin: was to not be true to myself earlier in my career. With many, many years of working through things, and actually, just uh, I do think that I think about uh, therapy and self work, and you know, even just studying the works of Jung and you know Adler and you know just the great psychologists of the twentieth and twentieth. 21st centuries. Like that's, that's the self-work that allows us to reprogram ourselves. So I can be nice. I can treat people like human beings, but there is also a goal and a thing that I want. And uh, especially as I head organizations, it's not about me being prescriptive or saying, this is what I think. And I have, you know, I have no justification for it. You know, if anything, my goal is to be, the, the leader is sort of meant to be someone who is incredibly empathic, who can sort of bring in all of the different disparate things that people want. And then I need to do synthesis, which is everyone knows that we're, we're on the same team. We may not be on the same page on, you know, how to achieve the goals, but we are, we can agree on what, what the goals are. And then if there's disagreement, and there always will be, because we're not one person, we all have very different experiences, people need to trust me to make the call, to sort of bring in all of the different things that people believe. And then we need to disagree but commit. And the ideal thing is organizations of people who are very different, who have totally different experiences, but who are aligned, high integrity, and genuinely enjoy working with one another, we can actually disagree but commit and then make the right choice together, right? And it, it shouldn't require bad feelings, actually. Like done right, people can say, well, I don't exactly agree with it, but I understand it. And that's okay. That's actually like a good scenario. And, you know, the more I spend time with people, uh, the more I realize, no, no, like that, you know, that's, that's what leadership is. It's not necessarily just making a call and saying, we're gonna do it my way and I'm gonna punish you if you don't agree. It's actually making people not just feel heard, but, you know, actually hearing them. And that's where I think turning niceness and empathy into leadership, that's where the rubber hits the road. What
2: makes you happy? What makes it fun?
1: Hmm. You know, I I think that I still just get addicted to various types of creation. So, you know, earlier, like working on Bookface after doing office hours was a form of that. And I was just like, oh, like, well, in the evening, I'm just going to like write this code and release it. And if people like it, that's great. I don't know, to be frank, like making videos now is (laughs) how I do it, you know, whether it is for my YouTube channel, but also the coolest thing that I recommend all parents do is get one of these, you know, either use your iPhone or you can get like one of these DJI Action 2s, like these tiny little sports cameras and just take like two or three second clips of going on a vacation or like a weekend with the kids or going ice skating and whatever And then just drop it all into Final Cut Pro and like drop your favorite song into the bottom and then like edit it together. And it like looks like a music video.
0: I love the ones of your kids. I love seeing. They're really cute. So that's great advice. Yeah. All right. Well, Gary, we've taken up a lot of your time. We're so happy to talk to you and catch up and hear all about
2: what's going on.
1: Thank you for having me. And thank you for believing in me to have me back at YC.
2: It's going to be Aww. a very exciting upcoming year-za. <laughs> All right, Gary. Thanks, Keri. Thanks, Gary. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. 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 Oh, C. Levy. Okay, so who knew he worked at Microsoft? I had no
0: idea. That's the shock of the conversation. I was the shock I am, of the conversation. I, I'm going to have to just... Next time I see him, I'm going to have a lot of questions for him. I wanted to ask, did he ever meet Bill Gates? But I have so many yeah. questions. I just had so much fun talking to him. And I, I'm i so excited. He's the new president of Y Combinator. Oh. I feel like it's
2: just going to be awesome. I just really, I think he's so thoughtful. So it's obviously he's going to be a great boss. Like working with someone who's that thoughtful and who's that insightful and who knows himself so well, like that's all the things he said there just at the end just are such feel good confidence building things.
0: And I do have to say, having known him now, gosh, for like 15 years, having known him for 15 years, I have seen an evolution of, I mean, he's always been the same Gary and the same talented, kind, smart Gary, but I have seen sort of a maturity and a willingness to get into some conflict and resolve things that way. And I think I think it's
2: great. It's like a confidence. Uh, yeah. And like, and, and, and I, and not to be too cute about it, but like the empathy that he was talking about, I think the empathy and the confidence feel like what's different. What's, you know, his evolution. That's how I, that's how I describe it. Yeah. Which
0: is great. I love, I just love when, when you
2: see someone do flourishing,
0: when you've known them for so long, It that sort mm. of makes me happy. Yeah. Um, so that was a really fun interview. So, Great. Well, can't wait to talk to you for the next one. Yep. See and, you next uh, week. <laughs> see you see you next week. Bye. Bye.